there, there are two types of teams in the National Association. One was the salaried teams, where all the players got a salary. And it was generally somewhere around $1,000. And the top ones got to 1800 maybe 2000 uh, Some got less than 1000 but it was generally around 1000 But the teams that did not have, were not as strong financially would be a, on a co- cooperative basis, where they would simply divide the gate receipts. They'd take out the expenses, and the net would go to the players. The best players wanted salaried positions because they didn't want to have to depend upon gate receipts for income. So the salaried teams got the best players. The co-ops got the worst players. And 1872 was the worst example of it. It was like a two-tiered league. You had teams at the top that were very good, and you had teams at the bottom that were very bad. And there's a huge gap between them. as a very non-competitive league. And eventually those teams would fall by the wayside. Teams, they didn't finish the season. And that was one of the biggest problems with the National Association. Their last year, several of the teams didn't make it to the finish line. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Greetings and salutations. Hello, friends. It's uh, your pal Tim Hanlon here, and uh, Good Seats Still Available is the magical little podcast that you have somehow stumbled into, and I thank you for stumbling into us and it and uh, our little conversations about the world of forgotten sports and what used to be in professional sports. Today, uh, our first return visitor, uh, if you go back to episode number 23, you will remember our friend Bill Reisick, uh, who wrote uh, the book about the uh, New York Titans, uh, the uh, predecessor, the early AFL football team that became ultimately the uh, New York Jets. Um, and Bill is an interesting cat because uh, he's uh, not a professional writer by trade, but has basically become one uh, in the realm of uh, of teams and leagues and uh, and uh, professional sports. And um, the uh, stories uh, and the episode, frankly, of the uh, uh, New York Titans. Uh, and again, I encourage you to listen to that episode either before or after this one. Again, it's episode twenty three. You'll find it on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com or wherever you podcatch. Uh, but today uh, we are talking about another one of Bill's uh, works, uh, which is in a completely different realm, uh, and that is of early days professional baseball. So early days, it's actually the first known professional circuit devoted to uh, baseball in this here country. It was called the National Association, and it preceded the uh, National League and the American League that we know today as Major League Baseball. Uh, it is the uh, beginnings of professionalism in the sport of baseball. And uh, the book that Bill wrote on this subject is called Black Guards and Red Stockings, A History of Baseball's National Association. And uh, it is arguably the uh, the beginnings of what is now known as professional baseball, but it's also the root uh, and the tributary, I guess, of uh, what uh, this little podcast is all about, which is teams and leagues and, and, and for, uh, various forgotten stories uh, of those teams and leagues. Uh, with the ultimate uh, beginning uh, of such, and that is the National Association, uh, the first ever not only professional baseball uh, attempt, but also the first professional league of any kind uh, in the modern day United States. So it's a very uh, interesting conversation. It's a great topic, and uh, it is uh, brought richly to life by our guest, Bill Reisick, uh, here in a couple of seconds. His book, Black Guards and Red Stockings, A History of the Baseball's of baseball's national association, and we will be talking about that time with him in a few seconds. Um, before we get there, I want to uh, thank you, of course, 
as always, for listening to our show. If it's your first time here, thank you for giving us a spin. Uh, and uh, if you're a return uh, visitor, we love the fact that you came back. And we also love the fact that hopefully you have told some friends uh, and perhaps even left a rating or a review somewhere where you can do such things. Uh, Apple Podcasts uh, is a good place to do that. But to anywhere, you can uh, leave uh, kind uh, commentary and uh, thumbs up uh, or stars or whatever you can affix to our little broadcast. We certainly love it and we thank you for it. Uh, we also want to remind you, of course, that uh, we are uh, sponsored under the good graces of our friends at Audible, where, of course, you can get a free audiobook download and a free 30-day trial of the Audible service uh, by going to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And uh, those things, that free month and that free audiobook download are yours uh, for the uh, for the trying uh, by going to uh, that little website. That's uh, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And uh, you can partake of over 180,000 titles uh, in the world of audiobooks. A couple ones that uh, are on my uh, my list to try out come from the world of baseball. Uh, one's called The Kings of Casino Park, Black Baseball, in the lost season of 1932, uh, written by Thomas Aiello and narrated by Clayton Butcher. And uh, one that uh, actually is next on my queue to uh, to listen to, uh, that uh, is uh, in the book form, at least, is forwarded by uh, Dion Warwick, the singer and um, all-around entertainer and star. Uh, the book is called Ruling Over Monarchs, Giants, and Stars, True Tales of Breaking Barriers, Umpiring Baseball Legends and Wild Adventures in the Negro Leagues. Uh, it's written by Byron and Bob Motley. Uh, it is actually uh, the story of um, of uh, Bob Motley and his uh, time uh, umpiring uh, the uh, Negro Leagues, and it is narrated by Richard Allen. Uh, these two and uh, are just two of the thousands and thousands of audiobooks uh, that you can choose from, and not just in sports, nonfiction, but tons of other uh, genres. When you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats to get your free uh, audiobook download and a free sampling of the 30 days in nature of the service from Audible. Give it a try. We thank you for doing so. And Audible does as well. And uh, audiobooks, they're great for uh, just for all occasions. Give it a try. And uh, I think you'll love it as I do. Okay, uh, let's move on now to our uh, uh, fun chat with uh, our first repeat guest. His name is Bill Reisick. And the book we're talking about is Black Guards and Red Stockings. It's the history of the National Association, baseball's National Association that ran from the seasons of 1871 to 1875 and, and birthed uh, what ultimately became uh, the beginnings uh, of, uh, of pro baseball with uh, the National League uh, the year after. Here's Bill Ryzik and me in our conversation coming up. So, for the benefit of our audience, uh, perhaps those who uh, were not uh, have not listened yet to the uh, Titans episode, please feel free to go to GoodSeatStillAvailable.com and find that old episode or wherever you you podcast, because uh, that's a very good conversation, very fun one about the days before the Jets were the Jets. And uh, if you're in the New York metropolitan area and you lament through yet another uh, so-so season of NFL Jet football, you'll understand perhaps how that all got started uh, with Bill's previous book. But um, give us, give our listeners a, a general sense, Bill, of how uh, you uh, came across this subject, the National Association. Uh, you are not a journalist or historian by trade, correct? That's correct. I've been in business. I was in banking earlier on, and I'm in finance now. But always been interested in history, always been interested in sports. always like to write. 
I was uh, the editor of our junior high school newspaper, which is uh, the, the pinnacle of my writing career. But uh, the National Association is the, was the first professional sports league. And at the time, or before I wrote about it, no, nothing had ever been written about it. It seemed like something that was deserving of a book. And uh, I determined that when I retired, I would spend time going around to libraries, which is how you had to research back then. This was like late 70s, early 80s. And uh, do the research in places like Fort Wayne and Keokuk uh, to write a book on the uh, National Association. But in, uh, in 1981, I ended up having some surgery, and I was going to be home for six weeks, and, and I got started. And once I got started, I just kept going. And by 1990, it was, it was 1981, by 1992, we had a book. I, I like to write about things. That's uh, why you've had me on twice. I like to write about things that fail. Uh, it, it's interesting to me. Uh, writing about great successes is not always as interesting as I wrote in the uh, preface to uh, Black Arts and Red Stockings, which is the National Association book. Uh, accounting is not a spectator sport. You know, efficiency is not entertaining. And the people who ran the National Association were not very efficient, and that's what made it entertaining. Having everything run smoothly is, is not really that interesting to me. It's, it's when things go off the rails and they're trying to fix them, and a lot of things happen that aren't expected to happen. So to me, that's what makes it an interesting story. And a tremendous undercurrent for this podcast. Uh, no, uh, no dark cloud hanging over it uh, based on that uh, that love and that interest. Uh, but we'll uh, we'll persevere and hopefully we will not uh, fail uh, in our in our efforts um, going forward. Right. So um, so uh, look, if anybody who's sort of a, an aficionado of of teams and leagues and all the stories behind them that uh, are no longer with us again for various reasons. Um, you know, in some respects, actually, you could kind of go back to the National Association almost as the, uh, you know, as the father, I guess, or the uh, or the family, I guess, of professional sports in this country, not just baseball, but uh, but all of them. Right. It was certainly the first professional league. I mean, football was not really they played something called they called football, but it wasn't really it wasn't anything like the game that we know now. Basketball wasn't invented. Uh, they played cricket in England, but certainly in America, this was the first organized sports league. You had other sports like uh, boating and uh, horse racing, things like that. But this was the first professional sports league of any kind whatsoever. So they had nothing to work from. They didn't know how it had been done before. It had never been done before. They had to pretty much blaze their own trail. Before we get into the, some of the specifics and the background and sort of the, the beginnings of how, uh, the beginning, shall we say, um, why this particular league and, and early days of baseball versus, say, other topics? Obviously, our previous episode, we talked about the uh, the AFL, New York Titans, which became the Jets of the AFL and then the NFL. Um, why this particular league, especially uh, so early on in history, right, where I would imagine source material was uh, not necessarily as easy to come by, perhaps, in, say, with later leagues and teams? Well, I, I think I do better writing about things than no one else has written about. Uh, you don't do well in sales generally because you, you realize why no one else has written about them. Uh, there's not a huge market. But versus what I wrote about the Yankees and the Mets, I really didn't want to write a story about Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle because so many people have written about it before. And if you're going to write about it, you have to do it in a different way. I don't want to just write what other people have written. Uh, and see so many books about uh, Ted Williams, Joe DiMaggio, Jackie Robinson. I want to write some, about something that no one has ever written about before. At that time, certainly, the information was not good. We did a, I, that book came out originally in 1992. I did a revised version uh, 2000 and, 
16 and corrected a lot of things because there was a lot of information out there that was just wrong. And I learned a lot after uh, I wrote that and I was able to correct it in the revised edition, which was, which was nice. You don't get too many do-overs in life. But uh went down to the uh, Performing Arts Research Center in Lincoln Center where they had the New York Clipper. And that's, that was the bulk of my research. The Clipper was the best source. Uh, it's, it's in the performing arts section, so you've got a lot of dance material. You've got a lot of performers running around there looking at uh, videos of ballet and things like that. And then there was me sitting there in a suit uh, going through the microfilm. And when I started, you, you, the copiers, weren't you couldn't even print legibly. You had to make handwritten notes. So it, it took a long time. Uh, mostly microfilm with the big reels and you know, spinning the reels around. Uh, not nearly as easy as it is today. Today it's unbelievably different to do research and, and in many ways just fantastic. Some of the stuff I'm looking at now, just have a question, we do. go online. You can find so many things, so many sources. Uh, you've got the sporting news online now. You've got so many, the Clippers online now. You can do it right from your, right from your home. So research was, was a lot different back then. But I wanted to do something that no one had ever done. And that's something clearly no one had ever done. There's a lot of misconceptions about it. And then I got into it. I did an article about uh, two years ago for the National Pastime Museum and website about why the National Association would be considered a major league, which it is not. In 1969, they had a, or 68, I don't remember which, they had a commission which determined which leagues were major leagues for statistical purposes and which were not, and they determined the National Association was not. And when I got into the writing of it, I became convinced and somewhat of a uh, fanatic about the uh, idea that it was a major league and, and had to be a major league. It was the only league. I mean, my argument is, if there's only one league, how can it not be a major league? But uh, the Major League Baseball disagrees with that. Well, let's get into that for a second, and maybe by by um, uh, by pathway that perhaps gets us to the uh, beginnings, the origins of what this national association uh, was all about. What, what is the point of contention, uh, based on what you can tell from both, I guess, both the Hall of Fame and Major League Baseball proper, uh, as to why the National Association of Professional Baseball Players uh, did not or does not rise to the level of quote unquote major league. The reason they gave was that it was poorly organized and managed and played in a regular schedule. And, and the point I made is that uh, this commission met during the, the regime of Commissioner Eckert, who was one of the worst commissioners, probably the worst commissioner ever. And I said if inept management of the sport uh, was a criteria, maybe they should throw out all the records from 1966 through 68. Uh, Eckert was no great shakes. But uh, the... I talked about things that make a major league. One is, are all the best players playing in that league? They clearly were. If you were a, a good professional player, you're a good baseball player, you were in the National Association. Even more so than in the National League. When the National League started, you had an international association and the National Association, which had a lot of good players. But when the uh, 1871 to 75 National Association was playing, all the best players were there. They had teams in the big cities, New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Chicago, uh, they were clearly a major league. Uh, the fact that they weren't well organized or managed doesn't denigrate the statistics of the players or the ability of the players. Uh, they, were, they were the best players in America. Well, we're talking about uh, the, the, uh, the National Association uh, began play in uh, the, uh, the, uh, the 
past century, well, I see a century before 1871, um, but it was it itself, the National Association, was an outgrowth of uh, an organization that actually preceded it, which was a more, I guess, polyglot of both amateur and whatever professional playing was out there, so called the National Association of Baseball Players. And then they added the professional part and thus the National Association uh, in 1871. So prior to that, right, it seemed like it was still formative, but there were, I guess, kind of sort of a large amateur base, right, to give some kind of rules and structure to the sport that was clearly gaining some kind of traction in this country. But then a beginnings of some level of professionalism that uh, proceeded to birth, I guess, this National Association. Well, the uh, National Association of Baseball Players was formed in 1857 when all baseball was amateur. And there was a period in the early 60s, mid-60s particularly, when they were pretending they were amateurs, but they really weren't. They were giving the players jobs, uh, which they didn't show up. They were giving them money under the table. They were doing, doing a number of things that they shouldn't have been doing, and everybody was pretending it didn't exist. When common sense would tell you that a player cannot go on a two-month tour with his baseball team if he's got a real job uh, and no other source of income. So in 1868 at the convention, they uh, legalized professionalism. And 1869 saw the first open all-professional team, uh, the Red Sox in Cincinnati, which was undefeated, uh, had a tremendous year. And that went on, they went on as members of the same association for a couple of years, and then the uh, December of 1870, they had a convention, and it became obvious these two groups could not coexist. The overwhelming majority of teams in the association were amateur. There were only a handful of professional teams, but they had all the power, they had all the interest, and uh, they were the ones who were really dominating things. So there was a, at the, in, in that December meeting, one of the amateurs tried to ban professionalism. That wasn't going to fly. And the two groups left knowing that that was the end of the road for them. And on March 17th, 1871, in New York at a saloon called Collier's Rooms, uh, the professional manager, club managers met. They, they didn't intend to form an association. They decided to get together to talk about scheduling for the next year because there was no, never any schedule. It was all done by means of correspondence between the team managers and secretaries. So they got together to uh, plan the schedule, and as they were uh, meeting, Somebody said, well, they sort of somehow evolved into let's form a league or association, and, and they did. They did it that night. They sent a couple people off to draft a constitution, and within a couple of hours, you had the first professional baseball league, not really planned. I mean, they say it wasn't. Maybe it was in the back of someone's mind, but it was almost spontaneous. Uh, they left the amateurs behind. It was an amateur association, but uh, the amateur association never amounted to much. People just didn't have the uh, the interest and the, the dedication the professional professional baseball became the, the dominant. Uh, they would always talk about an amateur revival coming up, but from that moment on, professionals dominated, and they started playing in the 1871 season. It almost uh, feels like maybe this idea of professional baseball, that, that is playing or uh, and getting paid for playing baseball, was almost uh, almost almost looked like as uh, sort of as a, as, a, as a large negative, uh, ironically. Always. Always, uh, it, 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 money corrupts, uh, and you, you always see that. The, the people keep dreaming about the good old days when life was pure, and, and you see players today you, talking about the good old days when they played for the love of the game. You know, I interviewed so many players from the 1960s, 
who talked about how they played for the love of the game. But you go back and read about them and their salary holdouts. They were they were the money was wasn't as big as it is now, but they were interested in money. Uh, there was always this dream, and I find it entertaining, amusing that uh, you read articles from say 1866, 1867 talking about how corrupt baseball is, and they want to go back to the good old days of the 1850s. Uh, the, the good old days were always about 10 years or 20 years before, but there were some people who were adamantly against professionalism. They thought it, was, it, was, it would lead to gambling, corruption, and in many cases it did lead to gambling, but there was a lot of gambling with amateurs. Uh, gambling was a big part of any sport. Uh, there were very few sports in that era that didn't involve gambling. Horse racing, of course, was a big sport. Boxing, which was illegal. Uh, dog fighting, they all involved gambling. Uh, and when baseball came, came about, uh, gambling became a big part of it, and that, became, uh, that was part of the uh, downfall of the National Association was the uh, thought that games were being fixed, and clearly there were gamblers involved with the National Association teams. Well, let's get into it. So the the, founda- uh, the foundation, the uh, National Association was founded on uh, St. Patrick's Day, 1871. Uh, but curious, before we even get to the league itself, uh, was the conspicuous absence of perhaps the most uh, notable professional team in the country, uh, the Cincinnati Red Stockings uh, of 1869 or so. Um, any ideas as to why Cincinnati uh in its uh you know in its i guess that that current form did not uh become uh a member of the national association it would seem pretty obvious in hindsight well there there were there was no team by that point uh they had an incredible season in 1869 and in 1870 they lost five games which would still seem to be a very good season but there was dissension you know once you have been undefeated it's very difficult to just be very good so the, the Citizen, backers of the team in Cincinnati got very upset. There were a couple of behavioral incidents uh, involved drinking and uh, an incident on a boat. And that they decided they were paying too much money. Again, the corruption of it all. These We want to go back to the good old amateur days when people played for the love of the game. So they disbanded the team at the end of the 1870 season. Uh, Harry Wright, who was the captain, took his brother George and two other players to Boston, took the Red Stocking name. Uh, they Ivers Adams had some backers there, and uh, they formed the Red, Red Stocking Club of Boston, which became part of the league. The rest of the Cincinnati Red Stockings went down to uh, Washington and joined the Olympic Club. The um, initial game of the uh, National Association, the opening game, the first major league game in history, was supposed to have been the Boston Red Stockings against the Olympics in Washington, which had a lot of uh, pizzazz to it because you had half of the Red Stockings in Boston, half in the Olympics, and it would be a big game. But unfortunately, it rained. Uh, the game was rained out, and the first game in Major League history turned out to be the Fort Wayne Kekiongas against the Cleveland Forest Cities, uh, a game that uh, Cleveland won, or Fort, Fort, or Fort Wayne won two to nothing. Uh, and uh, it's the lowest scoring game in the five years of the league. Now, that's interesting on, on, on a number of different levels. So, in essence, the Cincinnati Red Stockings of 1869 essentially became two of the major ingredients of two of the founding teams of the National Association uh, by heritage and, I guess, by players, right, in, in terms of Boston and Washington. So, that's yeah. that's an interesting uh, progeny, I guess. It is. 
with Sabre just did a uh, compilation book, and I wrote a few chapters for it on the Boston Red Stockings of 1871-75. It's on three or 400 pages. Uh, histories of the players, the seasons, the backers, uh, the games, and everything. It's, it's a, it, was, it was quite a team. They won uh, four of the five championships. The only year they didn't win was the first year, 1871. And their last year, they were 71-8. and eight. And That was Harry Wright, the old Red Stocking, Cincinnati Red Stocking manager, managing the um, Boston Red Stockings to uh, remember to four pennants in a row. Well, it's uh, it's also interesting to uh, to me and to historians, I would suspect. Uh, and uh, uh, when we uh, air this episode, which should I should think it'll be uh, the week after our uh, conversation about uh, the uh, the Milwaukee Braves, the years that uh, the Braves team was in Milwaukee, and it's important because the Boston Red Stockings basically birthed what then became ultimately the Boston Braves, and obviously the lineage that has uh, occurred since then, and. I, again, in retrospect, it's also interesting, too, to know that the Boston Red Stockings themselves were partially birthed from the original uh, professional 1869 team of the Cincinnati Red Stockings. So put that in your proverbial pipes and smoke it. It's a pretty interesting dynamic when you think about literally just how far back today's uh, now Atlanta Braves uh, literally go all the way back, arguably, to the even pre-beginning of professional baseball in this country. The only team that goes back that far, 1871, and you might have had the Chicago Cubs could have been there. There was a Chicago White Stocking team in the, in the National Association in 1871, but in 1872 and three there was no team. The reason being, of course, the Chicago Fire, which wiped out a lot, large part of the city of Chicago, uh, and ended up costing the Chicago White Stockings the first pennant. They had a few games to go. They wanted having to play on the road. Uh, had to borrow uniforms. They were pretty much demoralized. They'd lost money. They'd lost all their belongings. Ended up losing the pennant as well. So had it not been for those two years, Chicago would have also had a franchise for the entire tenure of Major League Baseball. Let's talk about the names of these teams before we sort of get into some of the interesting stories. Um, the uh, not only the well the names. I mean, there weren't uh, a, back in 1871. The uh, what we know as conventions of say Philadelphia Athletics or the Rockford Forest Cities. Uh, those are those I believe, if I'm not mistaken, were kind of retrofitted appellations for those teams. Do you want to get in a little bit as to like how these teams were basically referenced and uh, I guess in print and and in the uh, in the trade. And I I guess I got to think it was a little bedeviling for you as a researcher to kind of get a handle on what these teams' names actually were. Well, you're absolutely right, Tim. They, they were not known. In other words, the Boston Red Stockings were generally not known as the Boston Red Stockings. They were known as the Red Stockings. And I think that goes back to the early days of baseball when every team was from New York. So the teams were just known by their names, the Mutuals, the Atlantics, the Eckfords. Uh, they were rarely known by the town name because initially they were all from the same, same town, except maybe Brooklyn or New York. And in, in Teams were generally known by their nicknames. Uh, Forest City Club. Well, there were two Forest City Clubs. Forest City Club of Rockford, Forest City of Cleveland. And they usually call them that, Forest City of Rockford, Forest City of Cleveland. Or they called the Athletics, or maybe Athletics of Philadelphia. But rarely did they call them the Philadelphia Athletics. Uh, in fact, the um, when you go beyond the National Association into the 19th century, in, in the early 20th, nicknames were very fluid. Uh, the Boston team in the National League wasn't known as the Braves until well into the 20th century. They were known as the Bees, 
Uh, Brooklyn was known as the Superbas, the Dodgers, the Robins. Uh, names, you know, Phillies were something else. I don't some an, other some animal. I don't don't recall the name. I don't know if you do, but they were known by different names over time. Of course, the Yankees were the Highlanders, but uh, teams were known in the National Association days by their team name, not by the city. So when the uh, the league started in 1871, you had a, a pretty decent assortment of uh, major cities, major big cities, uh, mostly in the <clears throat> the East Coast and the West, uh, excuse me, the Midwest and the East Coast. Um, they have Fort Wayne in there in the beginning, Rockford, obviously smaller Midwestern cities. But, um, you know, as the, uh, the handful of years, and we're not talking, you know, we're only talking through 1875, so four or five seasons, um, there was a, a nice smattering of, of uh, shall we call them, little hamlets. Uh, interspersed there. Uh, how, how did how did uh, places like Elizabeth and uh, Keokuk, uh, Iowa, and New, even New Haven and Middletown, how, how do they get into the mix? All you had to do to join the National Association was make an application and pay a $10 fee. So a lot of people had $10. It, it, it wasn't even that much money back then. So in Middletown team, as an example, there Middletown. I, I grew up in Middletown, so I have an affinity for that team. This is Connecticut, so, right? Middletown, Connecticut. Yes, yeah. Yes, Middletown, Connecticut. I still work there. I was was there this morning, and uh, so I have an affinity to Middletown. And Middletown was trying to schedule uh, exhibition games with Boston, and, I, and uh, Ben Douglas, who was the secretary, uh, wrote a letter to Harry Wright asking if they would schedule them, and he said, "Well." We don't know if it'll be worth our while to go to Middletown. We don't know if you can draw a big enough crowd. But if you pay $10 and join the National Association, all the teams will have to schedule you because they're required to play five games or maybe seven games that year against you. So Douglas thought that was a good idea. He sent in his $10, and they were a major league team. Now, the people who formed the National Association had not anticipated this would happen. They anticipated that only serious teams would join. And the Mansfields weren't a terrible team, but they certainly – we're not in the league with New York, Boston, Philadelphia. And Henry Chadwick, who was the, the sports writer of the time, it was apoplectic when he heard that the Mansfields are in. The Mansfields can't be in the National Association. They were an amateur team last year. Uh, how can they be a, a, a team? And what the, the catch to paying $10 was that you not only had to pay $10, you had to make a significant investment to put a team on the field in terms of salaries, in terms of uh, travel expenses particularly. What these teams that had, didn't have much money would do was uh, play under a co-op basis. There, there are two types of teams in the National Association. One was the salaried teams, where all the players got a salary. And it was generally somewhere around $1,000. And the top ones got to 1800 maybe $2,000. Uh, some got less than 1000 but it was generally around 1000 But the teams that did not have, were not as strong financially would be a, on a cooperative basis where they would simply divide the gate receipts. They'd take out the expenses and the net would go to the players. The best players wanted salaried uh, positions because they didn't want to have to depend upon gate receipts for, uh, for income. So the salaried teams got the best players. The co-ops got the worst players. And in 1872 was the worst example of it. It was like a two-tiered league. You had teams at the top that were very good, and you had teams at the bottom that were very bad. And there's a huge gap between them. It was a very non-competitive league. And eventually those teams would fall by the wayside. Teams, they didn't finish the season. And that was one of the biggest problems with the National Association. Their last year, several of the teams didn't make it to the finish line, Keokuk being one, 
Uh, and a couple that did make it just were survived in name only. They weren't playing anybody. That, that was one of the big problems in the, in the league, the small-town teams. Any uh, In your research, any particular teams in this five-year odyssey, known as the National Association, that uh, maybe stuck, uh, stuck, stuck out? Can't speak today, but uh, wouldn't be the first time. Uh, stuck out as uh, interesting or, or just incre- incredible stories or uh, ineptitude or inebriation or any of these things? Or all of these things. Um, <laughs> one team that uh, stands out is the 1875 Atlantics of Brooklyn, or as they would be known today, the Brooklyn Atlantics. The Atlantics were the best team of the 1860s, a really top powerhouse team before the Cincinnati Red Stockings. And they, but their team broke up after the 1870 season. They um, went to, a lot of the players went to the Mutuals. The Atlantics had some type of co-op team, but they reformed in 1872, but they weren't very good. They played 72 through 74, got a little better. But then in 1875, some of the best players left, and they wound up... Uh, winning two games and losing 42, which is by far the worst record of any major league team ever. Uh, they lost their last, I think, 31 games. They were on the co-op basis. They used a lot of players because at the end they couldn't round up a nine. A couple of times, one time the gatekeeper uh, at the Union Grounds played. Uh, they just round up anybody who was around to play. But they lost some pretty horrendous games, You know, a lot of double-digit losses. But 2-42 and 42 is a team that stands out uh, as being particularly bad. Uh, they, somebody wrote that uh, they wanted to take up a collection to send the team on the road because uh, they felt if they got on the road, they would never make, earn enough money to come back, and we'd be rid of them forever. Uh, they just didn't go on the road. They didn't travel because they knew they couldn't cover expenses. They just stayed home, let teams come to them, and they would come to New York, but they'd get 50 people at a game, 100 people at a game towards the end. For me, being in Connecticut and growing up in Connecticut and living Connecticut almost a whole life, the Connecticut teams are interesting. Uh, Hartford, New Haven, and Middletown. I say I grew up in Middletown, and you know when I was a kid, had no you know first started following baseball, not a clue there was a major league team in Middletown. And you can always get uh, an interesting reaction out of people if you say to someone and you know, you're in Middletown, say, "Do you know Middletown had a major league team?" Never. I mean, no one would ever dream it. They were five and nineteen. Uh, didn't last long, ran out of money, but the Connecticut teams were always interesting to me. How did Kia Cook Iowa get in there, do you think? They paid $10, <laughs> like everybody else. But uh, in terms they, of they positioning, team, right? They, yeah. they had a team. What, what would happen is team of Kia Cook would have a, team, have a professional team but not be in the National Association. And they would play exhibition games against National Association teams, and they'd win one once in a while, or they'd play close. And they'd get excited. I said, well, you know, we, we should be in this league. Yeah, that's pretty much the same with anything, any group you belong to. They, they start to do something, and it's got to be better. You've got to move to the next level. They'll move to the next level not realizing that you're going to have a lot higher expenses. Maybe I'll just stay in Keokuk and play teams that come through as opposed to taking on an ambitious schedule. Uh, in uh, 1875, when they were in the National Association, they only lasted 13 games. They were 1-12. But Harry Wright went there, and um, either him or Chicago, they, they left with $65 for two games. Uh, you can't pay traveling expenses and salaries on $32.50 a game and cover it with $32.50 a game. Uh, they did, just didn't last very long at all. Okay, friends, sorry for the interruption. Just wanted to quickly remind you that today's episode of Good Seat still available is brought to you by our friends at Audible. 
the premier provider of digital audiobooks with over 180,000 titles to choose from in just about every genre you could think of. Audible titles play on iPhone, Kindle, Android, and more than 500 devices and MP3 players for listening anytime, anywhere. And for a limited time, my audience can listen to a free download of any book that they choose, as well as get a 30-day free trial when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. That's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And you can choose from over 180,000 titles, as we said, including uh, one that I'm listening to right now. It's called The Ten-Gallon War by John Eisenberg. It's the story of the NFL's Cowboys, the AFL's Texans, and the feud for Dallas's pro football future. Um, another one on my list, which I have yet to download, but is on my queue, uh, that could be interesting to our audience here, is called The National Forgotten League by Dan Daly, entertaining stories and observations from pro football's first 50 years. Those are just two of the many thousands of titles to choose from, and not just in sports history, but you name the genre that uh, you might want to listen to, and Audible's got it. By the way, two, uh, two guests, perhaps, that we'll have on the show hopefully sometime soon. But again, go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free 30-day trial as well as your free audiobook download to try it out for yourself. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And now, back to our conversation. Can you uh, describe... Uh, what games and and league play was like during that time? It, it obviously seemed like there was some level of structure, right? Albeit perhaps debatable whether it was truly "quote unquote" professional, right? With uh, you know, based on what the the Hall of Fame and what uh, Major League Baseball might say. But uh, any uh, sort of uh, uh, example or, or understanding of what sort of typical uh, gameplay and uh, and a season was like during those uh, those five years. Well, the games were arranged by uh, correspondence. There was no fixed schedule, and that led to a lot of problems. Uh, play people, teams not not getting together and playing their quota of games, but they'd write a letter to someone saying what what dates are you available, and then the other secretary would write back telling them some dates, and they'd reach agreement, and they'd start the game with uh, by tossing a coin to see who batted first. It wasn't the home team's uh, choice to bat last. Pitching was underhanded. Players didn't wear gloves. They played nine innings, but they played the full nine innings. If the um, there was no such thing as a walk-off win, you played until the end of the ninth inning. And if the home or the team that was batting last was ahead, they still batted in the ninth inning. A uh, lot of errors, a lot of hitting, very few walks and strikeouts. The, uh, the best batting averages were in the 400s, uh, low 400s. And you had the one of the most important positions. Now the most important position is the pitcher. The pitcher was important then, but the most important position was probably the catcher. Because if you think about a catcher trying to catch fastball pitching, and they threw fairly hard in those days, without a glove, without any protective equipment, it was one of the most challenging things you can do. Now you've got a glove, you've got a chest protector. It's expected the catcher can catch the ball. You know, throwing out base stealers, chasing pop flies, those are the hard things about catching. But they're assumed they can catch the ball. But... Uh, in those days, catching the ball was very difficult. So to get a good catcher was very, very important. It was important to the pitcher because the pitcher couldn't throw very hard if he didn't have a good catcher. You'd see that happen often. The pitcher's pitching, the catcher gets hurt. They have to put a substitute catcher behind the plate. He can't handle the faster pitches. The pitcher has to slow up. He gets hit all over the place. So you sign the catchers right you know, now you see pitchers that don't hit very well, but they're there for their pitching. Then it was catchers. 
most of the pitchers could hit. Al Spaulding, who was the best pitcher in the National Association, was a very good hitter. Uh, but there were a lot of catchers who had very low batting average. They were there strictly for defense. And that went on past the days of the National Association into the 1880s. He had a lot of uh, real good defensive catchers who couldn't hit at all. Why do you think um, uh, the association uh, had so many teams that came and went and, and couldn't, you know, over, I guess, a five-year or five-season long uh, run, uh, not gel further uh, to become uh, more stable and, and, you know, need some other entity, that being the National League, which came about later. Um, what was what was the issue or what were the issues that, that kind of prevented the National Association from, from being the stabilizing force going forward? Well, there was someone who was a lot closer to the situation than I, and that was William Halbert. Uh, William Halbert was the founder of the National League, and he founded the National League based upon what he saw as the problems of the National Association. He saw the problems as being, one, too many small, unstable franchises, uh, which you've already alluded to with the Keokuks and the Middletowns and certainly the Atlantics. He wanted to, uh, he had to have a minimum population size of 75,000 in order to get in. He raised the entrance fee to $100. He thought gambling was a problem. And in 1877, in the National League, he, he threw uh, four Louisville players out for life for gambling, admitted gam- or throwing games, rather. And that never would have happened in the National Association. Uh, revolving was another problem, players jumping from one team to another. There were a number of contract disputes. And it, it, there was really no management. The officers of the association, for two years, the officers of the association was a player, Bob Ferguson. Ferguson was a player. He was a captain, which was what we would now call a manager. He was an umpire, and he was a league president. So he was playing all these roles, and he really wasn't interested in being president. He showed up, I think one year he didn't even show up at the annual meeting. So there really was no administration, and what it was was each team trying to get advantages for themselves. One of the things that blew up the National Association was at the convention before the 1875 season, and a couple of disputes over contracts, players who had signed with multiple teams, and there was one situation, and they called it the Force case. Davy Force was a shortstop. The Athletics wanted him. The White Stockings wanted him. The Athletics packed the Judiciary Committee, ruled in their favor. And Chicago, with Hulbert, was very upset. And Harry Wright, who just had a sense of fair play, was very upset. And that was one of the things that led to the breakup of the National Association and the formation of the National League. It seems to me that, uh, based on my you know, much more cursory research that um, that a lot of the sort of play and and just the whole raison d'etre of the National Association, while trying to become sort of a professional ring around this uh, very popular, at least on the amateur level sport, um, it was almost like the inmates running the asylum. It seems like it was very much more the players kind of in control with their behaviors and, you know, they're moving around and and and. Uh, it just seems like maybe they perhaps were a bit ahead of the the owners or perhaps the owners were just not focused and, and resolute enough that uh, the, they couldn't control these players from from these various antics. Part of the part of the um, issue is that there were no owners. You had a number of stockholders, ah. but it was rare for anyone to have any significant financial commitment to these teams. They've started out as clubs. You know, the original amateur team started out as clubs, like you might have your Thursday afternoon golf league. 
everybody paid dues, and that's how they got the money to run the team. And then eventually you have gate receipts coming in. But the concept of a, an owner of a team didn't really take hold until the National League came in. Uh, so no one really had a great incentive to control anybody. The players did have control. They jumped teams. Uh, the, well, I say the owners, the, the stockholders, the members, whoever, uh, would generally let the rules slide. And there was no one running the league. It was just a conglomeration of the officers who all belonged to some team. There was no commissioner. There were no officers. There was no league administration. There really was no management and no league. Um, Hulbert with the National League uh, tried to change that. And people think, well, it's a miraculous conversion. All of a sudden, things went really well. But the early years of the National League were very tough ones. Uh, there was some concern about the league surviving. They had they were down to six teams in one year. They had teams in Rochester and Syracuse and Troy and Worcester. And they did not did not have a team in New York and Philadelphia. So even with with Halbert's changes, there was no immediate. Uh, improvement. It was probably it was the early 1880s before baseball really started to become better managed and become profitable. It almost seems like they even, uh, if I, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the um, uh, the uh, owner of the um, the Hartford team, the Dark Blues, was actually almost tricked into becoming the president of the National League once it uh, started. Are you familiar with that it, story? Yeah, you know, Hubble. I not Hubble. Um, Hubble was the Gershom Hubble. I'm thinking of. Um, Morgan Bulkley. Bulkley. The, um, Colbert was clearly the force behind the National League. Uh, Bulkley was a very respected figure. He was the president of one of the insurance companies. I think it was Aetna, uh, insurance company in, in Hartford. He was a political person. He was a very reputable person. And they made him the president for the first year almost by rotation. Uh, it, he clearly didn't do much. Halbert was behind the scenes running everything, and the second year Halbert took over and, and led the league until his death. But uh, Bulkley was just uh, you know, sort of picked at random. Being his stature, obviously, as a, uh, a businessman and a politician, gave the league a little pizzazz, but uh, he was not clearly the man behind things. And if there's another, another story, I, I don't know. You say he was tricked. I, that's a story I'm not aware of. Yeah, tricked. I, 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 I may have. Uh, my understanding is that uh, there was, a, I guess, a meeting uh, that, um, oh, that uh, Holbert uh, put together, I guess, to sort of secretly uh, create uh, eventually this National League. And uh, uh, absent from that meeting was Bulkley. And um, he basically, I guess, drew the short straw by not being there. And they basically voted him in. Uh, to so he, he was, yeah, I think he was at the last, there were two meetings. One was out with the Western teams where they sort of laid the groundwork to come and take on the Eastern teams. And then the, <clears throat> the second one, I'm not sure if Bulkley was there or not, but somebody from the Hartford team was there, but I, I think he was there, but they, um, you know, they just made him the president and you know, off they went and got him into the hall of fame. Totally unjustified, but he's, he's there. <laughs> Well, especially interesting too, given the uh, the, the predecessor uh, work that he did uh, for you know at least in the National Association, and and ironically, the Hall of Fame doesn't recognize the National Association as major league. But uh, another story for another day. Um, so, well, I, in doing my again cursory research, uh, a, a a figure kept coming up over and over again, and perhaps is very indicative of sort of this wanderlust of the players uh, from team to team, and 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 I'm sure there are various reasons for that. Um, 
I think you know who I'm going to talk about. This guy named Lip Pike, who, uh, you know, just seems to be a, um, a just an interesting all over character, um, almost representative, I guess, of perhaps what it was like to be a player in the National Association and and things before and after it. Pike was a very good player. He's known for being the first Jewish player. I, I believe he was. I He's always been considered that. I and mean, whether it was someone, you know, I later research may have found someone else. But, you no, know, the first player of Jewish descent to be um, in the major leagues. And he was a great power hitter, which most people don't know because in those days, you'd lead the league with four or five or six home runs. So nobody really thinks much of a, you know, anyone as a power hitter when they hit five home runs. But he was a great power hitter. And he moved around a lot. He was in Brooklyn, started playing with the Atlantics and the amateur and early professional era, pre-NA. He was down in Philadelphia, ended up in Hartford, St. Louis. Uh, he went, he got around. And a lot of these players, there was no reserve clause, of course, generally a one-year contract. So at the end of the year, you could sign with anybody. And there were several cases of players signing with more than one team, signing with two or maybe three teams, and then they have to sort it out. You know, what contract came first? What contract was legitimate? Uh, who would they play with? There are a lot of disputes, but players could sign you know, every year with a new team. No reserve clause until 19, or 1879. Would they ever play for different teams during the same season? Uh, not even you know, assuming they were traded or were anything related to a trade, but could, could there be a situation where they somehow, via dispute or whatever, show up for two different teams during the course of a season? Well, there was a rule that said you had to wait 60 days after you played with a team before you could play with another team, which was intended to stop what they called revolving, which is going from team to team. And uh, But then when if a team folded, as we said earlier, a lot of these teams didn't make it through the season, they waived that rule. So there were a number of times where players uh, played for a team that was went out of business and then hooked up with somebody new. In 1872, the uh, Troy team, which was actually a pretty good team, uh, ran out of money in the middle of the season. And the Eckfords of Brooklyn, who were a very bad team, uh, picked up almost the whole Troy team. So they finished the team, finished the season down in Brooklyn playing as the Eckfords. And there were certainly players who played with more. There were no, no trades. The first uh, player transaction happened in 1875. They, would, they were players with the Philadelphia Centennials. The Centennials went out of business in, uh, I believe, June. And before they went out of business, they got the, I think it was the Athletics of the Philadelphia White Stockings, I think it might have been the White Stockings, to pay them a certain amount of money to release a couple of the players so they could sign with that team. Those are the initial transactions that they would pay to have someone released. You had to get a release before you could sign with someone else. So you would pay a team, say, $1,000 to release a player, and then you could sign them. There weren't trades trading player A for trade player B. Well, that, that you know that, that that had to take an amazing amount of uh, sleuthing on your part to kind of even sort of divine what this process was because it sounds like it's just chaotic. It was, and that's what made it interesting. And in some parts, as I, I said, I got wrong <laughs> the first time around. You know, you see these conflicting stories, and you pick up the wrong one, or you you didn't get the right one, but. Um, it made an interest made interesting digging and, and you've got to think about what uh what uh what probably happened what might have happened what's feasible finding um you know two stories that corroborate and some of the stuff was just it, sports reporting was not always accurate in those days uh, news reporting wasn't accurate either people would just make things up and they had these wild fantastic stories there and think that can't be right and in many cases it wasn't 
Yeah, fake news was alive and well back then. It's good to know. <laughs> um, all right, but let's go back to uh, to Pike for a, a, a second. Uh, Lip is a fir- his full name was Lipman Emanuel uh, Pike, uh, and um, depending on who you ask or talk to, uh, I don't think very many people are around from when he was around. But uh, some even actually argue that uh, Lip Pike was the true first professional baseball player. I'm sure he was one of them. Um, but that, that uh, I that I haven't heard. Um, you hear Jim Creighton a lot. Uh, Al Reach was the first one to openly take a salary. There were some guys in Philadelphia in the mid-60s who were taking money. Yeah, I hadn't heard about Pike being the um, the uh, first professional. He Obviously, he was an early professional, no question. He was, I think Creighton came before him. And it, it, if Creighton took money, then he was the first. There's no proof that Creighton took money. Most of the, um, Creighton was the first great pitcher. He was a great hero. Died in age, age 21 at the in uh, 1862, which cemented his place in uh, history. But most of that, uh, the thought that he was a professional is based upon the fact he mu- there must have been some reason he went to the Excelsiors. Uh, they must have given him something. Uh, but there's no proof. There's certainly no uh, you know, evidence that money would change hands or anything oh, in writing. That's very interesting. I, I, I guess my point, only point with, uh, with Pike was that, um, you know, he, he – uh, performed quite well across all those teams in the National Association. Again, according to my data here, I guess he had the the uh, career home run and extra base hit records for the National Association, uh, which leads me to another question in a second. But um, it seems that that he was uh, uh, quite uh, uh, quite a star, quite a stellar player in this uh, fledgling National Association. Yet, of the eight people who made baseball's Hall of Fame from the National Association or had significant ties to the National Association, Lip Pike was not one of them. So I guess two questions. One, why not? And then number two, these other players that did become members of the Hall of Fame uh, that had their stays in the National Association, what, in your mind, do you think kind of separated them from the rest of the pack uh, to get in? I think what uh, hurt Pike was that he didn't last very long after the National Association ended. Uh, A lot of his career was before the National Association when he was a star in the late 60s. And there were no, there are no really good records. You know, so much of the Hall of Fame is based upon statistics, and you really, and, and certainly until recently, you didn't have very good statistics for the National Association. When I started doing my research, all I knew was number of games played, and if they were pitcher of the one and lost record, there were very, very rudimentary statistics, and almost none. It's only been the last you know, 20 years or so that they've really come up with uh, statistics. So the lack of statistics is one. I say his career didn't last long enough past the National Association to to uh, get him much, much notice. The players who, who did make it, uh, Jim O'Rourke was one. Jim O'Rourke blasted forever after the National Association. He played into the early 20th century, played one game in the 20th century. Uh, Harry Wright, of course, was a tremendous manager, uh, uh, one of the most important people in the game for many decades. Uh, Candy Cummings got in because they said he invented a curveball. That's all. Uh, whether he did or not, no one ever knows. But he got in for that reason, and you know the names of some of the others. George Wright. George Wright was the best player of his era. Pike was an excellent player. Uh, there were very few players who got in to the Hall of Fame based upon their performance in the National Association. And his the National Association was really his time. He was not. He was on the downslide by the time the National League started, and really didn't have that much of a career in the National League. So it seems like, the, uh, to your point, there's a there's a real bias towards uh, statistics. I, we've heard it uh, often in our, our conversations around the uh, 
the early scruffy days of the NFL. Uh, and I guess if you're the gatekeepers of these institutions, uh, you need to have some type of standards versus, say, uh, hearsay or conjecture or maybe, uh, you know, uh, you know, not complete uh, records and whatnot. But, you know, I, I, it's interesting because it does belie the fact that, you know, the, the formations of what are now more professional and, and, and well-recorded uh, uh, endeavors, you know, it, it has to be remembered that that it had to start somewhere. And it's not like the National Association was not an attempt, at least, to put some rings around, you know, this sort of amateur to professionalism and and to kind of just throw it out or just to kind of, uh, I don't know, denigrate it or, or keep it sort of on the side uh, before uh, the National League kind of was the sort of the traditional and official marker. Uh, it just seems a little kind of kind of strange to me if I'm looking back and trying to truly understand the roots and tributaries of, of how professional baseball came about in this country. And, and part of it is the lack of information. So when I started researching this back in 1981, there was just very little known. And one of the things that got me going about it was the fact that the N.A. was just dismissed. It was always dismissed as a joke. Uh, you, uh, I think Bob Carroll was in a story and wrote something about uh, the National Association being comparable to the town harlot. You know, just an embarrassment. And I said, well, the, you know, the history of the town Harlow was probably more exciting than the history of, uh, you know, say, William Holbert. Uh, it, it was just always dismissed as being an embarrassment. You know, this league went on for five years, but we just as soon forget about it because everything was done so poorly. But as I said, anytime you do something the first time, you're not going to do it right. Uh, you know, you start, we, we started a company 15 years ago. What we thought was going to happen didn't happen. <laughs> you, know, you end up saying, well, this doesn't work. We're going to do something else. And, you know, nothing ever works the way you think it's going to work when you start. And the same thing with these guys. They start up for instance, the first year. They, one of the reasons for having an, an association or a league was the fact that they, the way of they chose a champion was just becoming really convoluted. They didn't have a good way of choosing a champion. So what they said was every team has to play a best-of-five series with every other team, which seemed fairly simple. But once they got into it, they realized there were a lot of questions they hadn't answered, like, if one team clinches before a five, do they have to play the full five? And is the champion the one that wins the most games overall? Is it the one that loses the fewest games? Is it the one with the highest winning percentage? The one that wins the most series? The ones that lose the fewest series? So if you look at the standings from, say, August of 1871, they print three or four or five different possibilities. You know, well, if it's on series, here's the team that's in first, here's in second. If it's on games, here's another team. And then when teams started to drop off, uh, they they would discount their games. So you'd lose wins and losses depending upon what, how you did against a defunct team. And there were a lot of them. So you'd have all these multiple standings. And because they just didn't know how to do it. They, it was the first time they'd ever had standings. And it, it just became a complete convoluted mess in 1871. They got better as time went on, partly because Boston was so far in front that it didn't matter. But 1871, they were just totally confused as to who was in first place. What do you think William Holbert saw in all this cacophony to uh, make a more, I guess, uh, rigid attempt to actually make a true league circa 1876? Well, he was a businessman, and I think he saw profit potential. He was also a very parochial Chicagoan. He wanted the civic pride. He wants, Chicago always wanted to be the best in everything. They were, they're a city that was very late in forming. What's amazing about the history of Chicago is how late-blooming a city it was. Uh, really, until the Civil War, it was not much of anything. 
uh, Boston, Philadelphia, New York were all the top cities, and Chicago was just a little Midwestern town. In the 1820s, there were, I think, a few hundred people there. Uh, so they always had somewhat of an inferiority complex. They always had to have the best team. When they formed their first big team in 1870, and they had it was called the $20,000 nine, or because they, they they paid that much in salaries. Uh, they were always pretty boastful about their team, and Halbert was as boastful as anybody. He wanted Chicago to be uh, the leader. He um, saw profit potential down the road, and he was kind of angry with the way some things were done in the National Association. He felt he got jobbed in the Forest case, but uh, he just thought there was a better way to to run things. He was, an, he was a businessman. He liked efficiency. He wanted to see things run well. And he was very frustrated with dishonesty. Uh, he was frustrated, although he did a number of things uh, <laughs> in his, to his benefit, which weren't always on the up and up. But uh, yeah, he wanted to be efficient. Uh, just shocking he wouldn't see the uh, profit potential in uh, Elizabeth, New Jersey or Middletown, Connecticut for a, <laughs> for a National uh, League franchise. Um so uh, as um, uh, as we referenced before, the uh, the the Braves of Atlanta and the Chicago Cubs, which are uh, as we record this episode in the midst of a uh, a battle with the Nationals in uh, in their uh, National uh, League uh, Division Series game uh, this evening, does um, do do you know of have you heard of either the Braves or the Cubs uh, going back in somehow into time? to remember, commemorate, and otherwise uh, uh, offer any uh, deference to uh, their truly original roots in the National Association? Or has that, too, like the Hall of Fame and Major League Baseball, been kind of swept to the side? I've not heard of it. I think that I doubt that Atlanta would simply because it's so far removed in terms of geography. Um, I, Chicago is more likely to do it, but I have not heard of them doing anything. And they, they don't go back all of one. They don't have an unbroken chain to 1871. They were two years off. I, I've not heard of anything. And I guess my my last real question is, um, so as the National Association was uh, uh, fumfering its way through uh, the, the early, those early years and before the formation of the National League, were there any other uh, attempts to perhaps challenge even the National Association uh, with sort of a more strict sort of league structure? Or were there other attempts, I guess, to quote-unquote, professionalized baseball beyond what the N.A. was doing? No, they were not. All the top teams were in the National Association. There were a few handful of other uh, professional teams outside the National Association, but they were just what we'd call now barnstorming teams. They would go around and they would play the N.A. teams or play other professional teams. There was no other official organization, not even any state leagues or anything like that. Uh, it really, really was just the National Association. That was it. It's very interesting. Um, all right, so you want to do some promotion here for the uh, for the book. You want to tell our, our audience the the revised version. I think is clearly the one they want to get. Uh, but you want to give us the, some of the details of the of where uh, you know who publishes and all that kind of stuff. It's Blackguards and Red Stockings by McFarland Publishing. It's McFarlandPub.com. And uh, the big heart and biggest challenge is spelling my name right. It's R Y C Z E K. And if you do that and you put it in the McFarland search engine, you'll find me. If you go to Amazon, you put it in their search engine, you'll find me as well. And I say, I'm glad to get to. They definitely want the revised edition. We, I think we've gotten rid of all the, unless somebody's selling them on the secondary market, we've gotten rid of all the uh, first editions. And uh, second edition is, is more accurate. Uh, it, it's, it comes up all the time. And I there were so many times. After that came out, I'd say, boy, I wish I could go back and redo that. 
So we did a, a, an addition. And McFarland was happy because there were extensive revisions. Uh, we, we did the entire background because I'd written two other books when, when Johnny came sliding home and baseball's first inning that uh, uh, took it that covered the time prior to that because I thought I was starting at the beginning. I said I'm going to start the, for the first professional league and then I'll move forward. Well, I found out that wasn't the beginning, so I started going backwards. Um, covering that time, and I learned a lot that I did not know when I wrote the first edition of uh, Blackguards and Red Stockings. There was a lot that nobody knew. So some things, and some of the things I just just got wrong. So uh, I was able to go back and correct those in the revised edition. And if I live long enough to do a third edition, I'll probably find something in the second edition that want to change as well. Well, it's a, it's a seminal work, and I think any baseball historian, uh, you know, obviously uh, should uh, regard uh, the National Association as the true. Uh, formative years of what then became, you know, the National League and then obviously the American League afterwards and, and what we know today is Major League Baseball. And, uh, and I think it's, it's a great, uh, it's a great delve into, frankly, the origins, not only of baseball, but frankly, of, of organized professional sports in this country uh, that, you know, we kind of uh, uh, lumber our way through with this uh, crazy little podcast. Um, any other uh, things that you have in the back of your mind or maybe in the front of your mind as further topics to pursue uh, in the realm of sports, uh, as we've uh, kind of talked about two episodes already. Any more coming in the, in the hopper? Well, I'm writing a couple of things, but, uh, you know, one one thing that's interesting, I'm writing about, um, and it's been in the works for a long time, uh, about book about the 1884 baseball season. And that what makes the 1884 baseball season so interesting to me is that you have three major leagues. You have the American Association, the National League, and the Union Association, which lasted one year. And Right up your alley of defunct things that didn't go very well is the Union Association. It was the creation of one man, Henry Lucas, uh, in St. Louis, put this organization together. They had one year. St. Louis ran away with the pennant because he bought all the best players. And then what he really wanted to do was get into the National League, so he abandoned the Union Association when they let him into the National League the next year. And that's, you know, an interesting thing to me. That's, I'm not sure how close that is to. Being finished, I got more research to do. I've written written a lot, but uh, that's in the works. The Union Association is absolutely something that we will put a pin in, and we will make sure that we keep in touch with with Bill Rizek for uh, that. Hopefully, the inevitable book that will come uh, out of that and that uh, and that interesting season. Um, thank you, Bill, very much for being our first return guest, and we uh, we can't thank you enough for being such uh, for now a second time and for tolerating my silly questions and. Uh, Hopefully our audience will benefit and maybe even pick up a copy or two of the book. Well, great. I've enjoyed it, Tim. Thanks very much for having me again. I was delighted to do it. Okay, there it is. You fans of the uh, Fort Wayne Kikiangas and the New York Mutuals, uh, the Troy Haymakers, uh, the Brooklyn Eckfords, uh, this episode was for you. Bill Rizek, thank you for uh, being part of our, our, our fine chat and our fine uh, pursuit of teams and leagues that uh, no longer exist. Uh, a kindred soul, he, and we look forward, of course, to uh, his other works to come, hopefully around the Union Association uh, for other old-timey baseball stuff. Uh, uh, what else is uh, on Bill's plate? Uh, I'm sure we will find out about it and uh, hopefully have a further chat about it when uh, the time is right. The book uh, that we uh, continually referenced in our chat is called Black Guards and Red Stockings. It's the history of of baseball's National Association, 1871-1875. Uh, it is the revised edition that you are looking for. 
Uh, it is published by McFarland. It came out in March of 2016. Uh, so it's about as uh, current and updated as uh, you're going to be able to find. And uh, again, it's uh, Bill Reitzik, uh, who also, uh, if you remember on uh, episode 23, uh, helped us with uh, some fond memories of the old uh, New York Titans. Uh, the book up there, of course, is called Crash of the Titans. Uh, and that is the early history of what uh, became the uh, New York Jets. Both books uh, are published by McFarland. Uh, can be found wherever good books are, are sold. And of course, you can find links to both of those books, as well as the uh, uh, earlier episode that we had with Bill uh, on our fine website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just go to the uh, listen section and you'll find all the past episodes uh, for all those fun things that you may have missed. And again, you can click and link and uh, buy uh, those books and all those other fine things uh, from there. Uh, we encourage you, of course, to keep following us on social media. Uh, on Twitter, it's probably our most active, and that's at Good Seats Still. Uh, uh, our second most active, I would say, is our uh, Instagram uh, page where we put a nice uh, photo or image from uh, this week's uh, current episodes, uh, usually about once a day on there, and that's at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, we are a little less active, we admit, on Facebook, but we do appreciate uh, the commentary there on our little Facebook page. Uh, so find us there. And of course, again, the goodseatstillavailable.com website uh, for uh, more good and fun stuff. Uh, we want to thank, as always, our friends at Podfly Productions. That's at podfly.net for all your podcasting needs. And again, if you're thinking about doing a podcast like, uh, like I was six months ago, uh, I encourage you to try out uh, the Podfly folks. They are really good at what they do. Uh, they're very good with beginners. They will help you through the entire process. Uh, and you can't find any finer folks than Podfly Productions. And those people are David Gregerson and Corey Coates and Jerry Payne and Eric Begay. It's podfly.net. Tell them that Tim Hanlon and the Good Seats Still Available podcast sent you. Okay, we're done for this week. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. With another fun-filled episode, gosh knows where we're going to get uh, our next topic from, but you can guarantee it'll be a, a fun one uh, at that. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. 